Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 195. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy. We have a great lineup and a new fact article kicks off today as well. I'll give you a little heads up. We have a little chat about an, a lecture that's taking place. I hope you will come along and join in that. Then we have the Hugo Reviews, a new, well I'm calling it that, it's, it's up to Andy. Andy Thomaswick has done a little fact article which is going to be rolling on every month now, which is reviewing the Hugo winners, the, the actual novel. So does, Andy explains a lot in the fact article as well, so you can have a listen to that. That's coming up straight away. Then we have Main Fiction by a good friend, Will McIntosh. It is Frankenstein, Frankenstein, which is a great story as well. Next up is Science News by JJ Campanella. And that is it for this, this week. Do have a look at the artwork. It is by... Matthew Wazelia. Matt has done a couple for Starship so far, I think, now. I've got one in the in the process. One's been done. Matt, this is just great. I've seen Matt's work and I just kind of fell in love with it. So do pop over and have a look at the front of the website for Matt's work. I will put a link on the Matt's site because he is. This is how he makes his living. Do pop over there and say hello and get yourself some artwork by him. Matt, thank you so much. So, first up, we're going to talk about a little time travel lecture. Yes! On the 23rd of July, 5pm UK time, we are going to have... Oh, it's actually, I was going to say a Starship Sofa. Holodeck, Holodeck Enterprises. You know, the Holodeck lectures, the workshops. Well, there's going to be a Holodeck time travel lecture. And guest speakers, listen who this is. Guest speakers are Connie Willis... Ted Chang and Amy H. Sturgis. For two hours, we're going to talk about time travel. And it's going to be live and interactive. So if you want to come over there and ask some questions to Ted Chang, Connie Willis or Amy, anything to do with time travel, that'll just be fantastic. So I'll put a link on. There's a, Josh has kind of made like a little logo there. Click on the site and you will, you will be taken to the Eventbrite page if you want to sign up and 
come along and enjoy that. Tickets are £15, and I'm quite pleased they are selling as well, which is rather sweet. So do jump on board if you want to come along and be a part of that. Like I say, it's on the 23rd of July. All you need is your computer, because what you'll see is my computer screen, and you'll be able to listen to Connie and Ted and Amy talk about time travel, which is just like, in my eyes, and my kind of the way I feel about science fiction time travel is just the one that makes us like exactly like an excited little puppy and they get these two writers you know connie willis time travel is such a big thing in her work and then ted chang you know the the alchemist gate the merchant in the alchemist gate with time travel in there just fantastic story there and amy's going to do like an article you know on you know Amy's like kind of history, and I'll try and get Amy on next week. We'll have a little chat with her about you know all the kind of science fiction, what she thinks are good stories and good novels to read. Amy's going to do that at the end as well. So please pop over to the front of the website. There's links. You've hopefully you've had some emails as well, but I've sent out. So sign up, and that will be fantastic. So first up then is a new fact article. It is by Andy Thomaswick and Andy's. A couple of months ago, sent over this idea where he's actually been reading all the kind of best, or you know, the Hugo Awards. Just he wants the best of literature out there in science fiction, and he's now decided to kind of put this into a fact article. So I'm just going to hit play. And Andy, thank you so much for you know starting this, and I'm looking forward to listening to many more, sir. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Hugo Review. Before I jump into this first review, I figured I should give you a brief introduction of who I am and what I plan on doing. The first question is easy enough to answer. My name is Andy Thomaswick. I live and work in the States as an electrical engineer. I'm also an avid sci-fi fan and have been for over two decades. Most of my experience with science fiction comes in novel form, with only a sprinkling of motion pictures. To supplement that experience, I began listening to The Sofa and its associated fact articles around a year ago, and they have been dragging me out of my self-constructed shell of excessive paper ever since. What I plan on doing is slightly more complicated. The idea for this article spawned from a college-age realization that I didn't have time to read all the books that I want, which included everything from Star Wars Rogue Squadron to Childhood's End. With that realization in hand, I decided I didn't want to spend my time reading mediocre or even bad books. I only wanted the best so I set out looking for only the best. While I was out looking, I stumbled upon the Hugo Awards. These awards are granted by real passionate science fiction fans who take time out of their lives to go to a convention to vote on them, so you know that they really care. It was sort of like crowdsourcing critics' reviews of a book before I even picked it up. So I started buying Hugo Award-winning novels, starting with Spin, which won the prize in the year I started the project. I realized that the only way to truly reach the full potential of a project like this was to share the experience with people. None of my close friends were much for science fiction, and whenever I discussed an idea I encountered in one of the books, most looked at me like I was either crazy or drunk. Then, Tony mentioned on the show that he was looking for new fact articles, and I immediately realized the potential this project would be able to realize in that format. Though it was slightly more of a public forum than I was expecting, it would certainly open up opportunities to discuss these books I've been enjoying with people who are truly interested in them. It also helps that the SOFA had won a Hugo Award itself, which is how I found it in the first place. One of the beautiful things about Tony, as I'm sure you all know, is his enthusiasm, and it really showed itself when I pitched this idea to him. Hopefully this segment will live up to his high standards of content, and I'll be sure to give it my best. I should note that the opinions that appear in the Hugo Review are my own, and don't reflect those of the SOFA or any other members of the podcasting team. 
So without further ado, I'd like to give you the first episode of the Hugo Review for The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. The story of The Wind-Up Girl centers around one of the mainstays of science fiction literature, dystopianism. The three main themes of dystopian stories, oppression, terror, and deprivation, are woven into the story in abundance. And, like any good writer should, Bacigalupi manages to invoke warnings through the use of these horrific tools. While he doesn't explicitly say what exactly was causing the problems of the world of the wind-up girl, they're readily identifiable to anyone with a sufficient imagination. The barricade holding back the wall of water threatening to engulf futuristic Bangkok is most likely there because of global warming. The blister rust that has wiped out most edible food crops was most likely created by an American agricultural firm attempting to grab a monopolistic hold on the world's calorie market. And the genocide that is exhibited in a neighboring country and experienced through one of the story's main characters is a relatively accurate portrayal of the xenophobia that would go along with the stresses of such a dysfunctional world. Bakigalupi could win another ten years' worth of Hugo Awards, writing the background stories for this one world, and the story he chose for the wind-up girl is certainly deserving of one. It is a character-driven story, and there are plenty of those characters to drive it. Though seemingly disparate at first, the characters start to interact with one another as the novel progresses, even though many of them don't realize that they're doing so. They're attempting to fight their own specific fires, or in this case, environmental or personal disasters, and end up either helping or hindering the other characters as they do. The build-up to the final confrontation is both compelling and seemingly natural. All of the events in the book, and there are a lot of them, seem plausible, and are not simply used as literary tools to prove a point. In fact, Bakagalupi doesn't appear to have any point to prove. He doesn't give a condemnation of one way of living or the other. He simply shows how he believes the different characters in his story would react to their problems and their environment. The strength of the story is truly the characters' reactions. They are dealing with some combination of the oppression, deprivation, and terror common throughout the book. How they deal with them seems so natural for their different backgrounds and personalities, it really is a realistic portrayal of the actions of any given character. The one that would be most familiar to many readers, and the one the book opens on, is Anderson Lake, an American businessman in Bangkok on assignment for his company. But the characters range as far from him as a refugee living in constant fear of another round of the genocide that claimed his family, and the titular wind-up girl, which is in fact a biological construct rather than a human. Bakigalupi manages to tell the stories from each character's perspective, and nails down each individual point of view. It's almost as if he changes his writing style based on the viewpoint he's writing from. But he doesn't really. Bakigalupi has been called poetic, and while this book doesn't necessarily compare to true poetry, it is extremely well written. The illusions of disaster alone are enough to draw the reader in, and the characters enough to keep them there. Murder, political discontent, personal rivalry, biological catastrophe, and individual hardship all play crucial parts of the intricately woven story, and yet it seems to all make sense in the end. What makes it even more interesting is that there is not truly a side that is purely good or evil. The reader must really draw their own conclusions for themselves. Whatever the reader concludes, they will most likely still think that The Wind-Up Girl is a good book. Bakigalupi is an up-and-coming writer, and has a ton of potential, especially if he continues to create imaginative worlds like that of the wind-up girl. Look out for more of his work in the future, as hopefully it will be even better. But that's all the time we have for this edition of the Hugo Review. Next time we'll be covering the co-award winner for 2010 with the wind-up girl, The City in the City by China Mealville. Thanks for listening to this first episode, now get out there and start reading. <laughs> Kind words, Andy. Thank you very much. Yes, next month, let do, you know, come back and listen to Andy. Andy, thank you so much. So we, the main fiction is Frankenstein, Frankenstein by 
Will McIntosh. Will, firm favourite with Starship Sova. And like I say, he's one of those writers for me that just kind of, the, the ideas are just so unusual and so like kind of mixed up and strange but so, and, and bizarre as well, but just so good. This story is narrated by Simon Hildebrand, a very good friend of the sofas as well. Simon, way back when, I've mentioned this once or twice before, he did the sofa stream, which is the Android app. That's what um, Simon does. In, like, something to do like that in, in the real world. Builds all these things and he's good with computers and that. But in, in the make-believe Starship Sova world, he is the fantastic narrator. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Frankenstein, Frankenstein, by Will McIntosh. Waiting in the closed casket is the worst part. The prickly dread invoked by the dark box was far worse than the wide-eyed shrieks that would ensue when I emerged. Darby had assured me that I would grow accustomed to the casket, but I thought that unlikely. Darby had never been in one. I was clutching my hands across my chest like a corpse positioned for viewing, and I repositioned them at my sides. I listened to Darby's patter and to the noise of the crowd, trying to relax. Dear patrons, ladies, gentlemen. Darby's baritone vibrated the coffin. The railroad spike lodged in my head was pressed to the side of the coffin, and it picked up the vibrations and caused my skull to hum. I can read it in your faces. Some of you are sceptical, even amused. I don't blame you. I can assure you that your amusement will be short-lived. I can also assure you that Dr. Victor Frankenstein was not just a character in a book, because he was my grandfather. This brought scattered laughter from the crowd. Go ahead, laugh. But Mary Shelley was not a purveyor of fictions with a tall imagination, but a biographer who lost her courage. The proof is in this box. I was prepared for the rap on the coffin this time. It had startled me during the first few performances. My grandfather retrieved the monster's head from a railroad worker who suffered a terrible and fatal accident when a charge he was setting exploded prematurely, driving a thirty-inch steel spike into his face just below the cheekbone. I could picture Darby touching the spot below his cheek to show the audience where the spike had entered my head, and out of the top of his head. It is lodged there still, as you shall see. Indeed, it was lodged there still. Our meal ticket. His limbs were gathered from amputees in exchange for the cost of their medical expenses. Poor souls. Victims of accidents, infection, gout. His heart is the heart of a black bear, his kidneys. Well, that is enough detail, don't you think? Grandfather was called a ghoul by those who misunderstood his work, and I remained sensitive about that portrayal. My anus began to itch. It was an unfortunate spot, because it would be no easier to slake the itch when I was out of the box and under a hundred stairs than it was to reach the spot while still in the box. I tried to ignore it. So, enough of my oration, huh? Would you like to meet the Frankenstein monster? There were shouts of assent, whistles, and scattered applause. All right, then, Darby boomed. I shall summon him. He paused for dramatic effect. Rise! Rise, my creation, my demon spawn, my pride, my shame. Show yourself. I counted one, two, three, allowing the tension to rise. Then I pushed on the plush, padded underside of the casket lid, allowing a crack of light to rush in. I gave my eyes a moment to adjust, then threw off the lid. It clattered to the wooden stage. 
I rose to a sitting position, rotated stiffly to face the crowd. Smiles froze, shrunk to tight rictus O's. Mouths snapped shut, others fell open. Shrieks and shouts ensued, filling the tent. A woman in the front row lost the strength in her legs. The gentleman accompanying her was too sluggish in his attempt to catch her, and she dropped to the straw-covered ground. "'Do not be alarmed!' Darby shouted over the din, waving his arms. "'The monster will follow my commands. There is no danger as long as you do not approach him.' "'Yes, do not approach too closely.' For while some of the long, jagged scars that swept across my torso were real, others were drawn in before each show, along with the lamp black under my eyes to make them appear more deep-set in my long face. I pressed my palm against the edge of the casket and rose. It was important that I rise slowly, drawing myself up, up, as if I would never stop, the three-inch boosters in my thick boots and the angle of the stage making me appear impossibly tall. My dear God! "'Someone cried out. "'It can't be! It just can't be!' "'But it is,' Darby added. "'Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Frankenstein's monster.' "'I pointed a hooked index finger at the audience and howled. "'We had worked hard on the howl. "'It was a most disconcerting sound. "'Half a dozen people turned and fled the tent. "'Most of those who remained backed up a few paces. "'It's a fake,' It has to be, a suspended oaf said from the end of the row. His arms were folded tightly. It's two ends of the spike, stuck to him with something. Come see for yourself, Darby stepped off the stage, approached the sceptical rube. Come. He tugged the man's elbow. The man allowed himself to be drawn onto the stage, his bravado melting as Darby turned him towards the sea of faces in the audience. Darby commanded me to sit then encouraged the sceptic to examine the spike. The lights dimmed, in case he took a closer look at my scars, though we found the spike captivated most people's full attention. Cautiously, the oaf stepped forward, leaning towards me to look at the spike. Touch it. Go ahead, Darby said. The oaf reached out, pushed at the spike jutting out of the top of my head. As he drew his trembling finger away, I let my head droop to an angle where he could see the spike disappearing into my skull. He cried out and fled, running right out of the tent. Darby cautioned me that when you lie, absorb as much truth into the lie as possible. It was true, then, that I had acquired the spike in an accident while working for the railroad. As far as I can tell, it caused no damage to my mind. In fact, most of my education has come since the accident when I, weary of terrifying women and young children, sought sanctuary in a cabin in the wilderness of British Columbia. But do not imagine a bearded mountain man hunting for his supper and skinning it with a hunting knife. I ate mostly beans and potatoes. I lived off the largesse of my younger brother and spent my days reading. I read Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley's novel, but it was Darby, not I, who formulated the Frankenstein plan as we sat drinking in a pub. Manual labour was beyond me because of my injuries, so when loneliness finally drove me back to the world, I had to rely on my intellect and deceit. The sceptic tonight was perfect, don't you think? Darby asked. He sat at the tiny secretary by the window, counting the evening's receipts. If he'd had a tail, it would have been tucked between his legs, I answered. Darby chuckled appreciatively. By the time we arrive at the fair in Chicago, word will have preceded us. We'll draw five hundred a show. 
there was a knock at the door. Mr. Darby, may I speak with you? Darby went to the front door of the wagon and opened the door a crack. I heard a man introduce himself as Dexter Wilson, an inventor interested in animism, he said. He wanted to discuss technique. He was the sort of man we avoided, one who could tell the difference between scars caused by shale and wire driven across the skin by an explosion, and surgical scars resulting from the attachment of sundry limbs to a torso. Darby kept the door nearly closed. My grandfather was the genius, not I. I am neither a doctor nor a researcher, only nursemaid to a monster. I wasn't even present when the monster was created. Ah, Wilson said, but the monster was. I heard the unmistakable rasp of currency being handled. It is a sound to which I have grown attuned in my new life. If I could have just a moment's audience with him, I assume he can speak. Oh, yes, he can speak, Darby replied. He accepted the bills, then held up a finger. There is one condition. You must keep a fair distance from him. He tires at night and can become disagreeable. Of course, I understand, Wilson said. The excitement in his tone was unmistakable. I snuffed out the large lamp, leaving only a small one burning, and retreated to my bed, drawing the blanket to my chin. The door squealed open and Darby entered, followed by Wilson, who was clutching his hat at his waist, his eyes blazing. "'This man would like to speak to you,' Darby said. "'He means you no harm.' I nodded understanding, breathing heavily through my nose to give my presence a beastly air. Darby left us alone, closing the door so that the room was thick with shadow. I did not offer him a seat, but only stared. "'Can you tell me what you remember from your first day?' he whispered. His demeanour bordered on reverent, like a man in a church who had glimpsed his god. "'My first day?' I replied, an octave lower than my voice would produce of its own accord. "'Yes, the day you were made.' I grunted, feigning amusement. "'I remember pain. Bandages.' He took an eager step forward. "'What was around you? Was there a storm outside?' "'Ah, he had read Mrs. Shelley's book, had probably worn the bindings to threads.' I rolled my eyes up as if searching my memories. No, I answered. No, Wilson said. He swept oily hair out of his eyes. Then what provided the spark of life? I had grown skilled at fabricating memories. The key was to stay in the vicinity of Shelley's account, but to drift, thus suggesting I had information she did not. I remember great wheels turning, the sound of rushing water, blocks of black iron everywhere. Magnets? Wilson interrupted, breathless. Magnets? Uh, if he liked, they, they could be magnets. Uh, yes, magnets. Good, good. What else? Strange fluids in my mouth running through tubes into my heart. Did the fluids have a color? White, I said. Milky. Wilson looked around, lunged at the tiny desk Darby used to keep records. He flipped a sheet of paper covered in figures, reached for the pen and ink, and scribbled furiously. He wrote as if he'd forgotten I was there. Finally, he glanced at me. Please, pardon me. Things escape me if I don't write them down. 
He rose from the table, the chair scraping. What else do you remember? Wasn't that enough? Nothing else. Wheels, tubes, bandages, a man standing over me. Dr. Frankenstein, what was he like? Wilson asked, breathless. His neck broke easily, I growled, flexing my fingers. Another variation from Mrs. Shelley's account, but I was here and she was not. Wilson ducked at the waist and took a step towards the door. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. He took another step backwards, kicking the table leg and almost stumbling. Your mere existence is all the encouragement I need. With that he turned and rushed out. I shook my head, chuckled. Magnets and white fluids. Yes, that should do it. Or was it dynamite and a railroad spike that made the monster? The wagon groaned to a halt. I slept well when the wagon was moving, but the pleasure of sleeping to the wagon's rocking was always offset by the jolt and jarring silence that woke me. I drew back the curtain a sliver and peered out of the open window. We were settled in the weeds beside a stream. Darby chose a spot close to water whenever possible. Streams and lakes cooled my nerves far better than any drugstore potion. I reclined back onto my narrow bed, listening to the water, until I heard voices outside. It never took long for people from the town to notice our colourful, enclosed wagon with its enticing images painted on the sides. The first to come were usually children. They would run and spread the word to their parents, and soon we would have a curious crowd. Soon I heard Darby out there doing his part, selling the spectacle of the Frankenstein monster. I rose, admiring his skill from the window. He was gesticulating wildly towards our wagon, his eyes stretched wide as if to illustrate just how awe-stricken his audience would be if they paid to see the show tonight. "'Hold on a minute,' one of the townspeople said, cutting Darby off mid-gesticulation. "'You're saying Frankenstein's monster is in that wagon?' He pointed in my direction. I ducked behind the curtain. "'I am indeed,' Darby said. "'Well, that ain't possible,' the man said. He shook his head almost mournfully. "'I realise it's hard to believe that the Frankenstein mo the man cut Darby off. "'It ain't possible, because the Frankenstein monster is already here. I paid a dime to see him last night, over at the fairgrounds.' I was sure I must have misunderstood the man. Darby spotted, lost for words. "'That's right,' the man insisted. He tugged the bill of his hat to negotiate a better fit. "'I don't know who you got in that wagon, but last night I seen the Frankenstein monster with my own eyes.' "'He's big as a mountain.' "'Scarred all over himself,' a stooped old woman added, "'spreading her hands to illustrate the creature's size. "'A giggle escaped me. "'I clapped a palm over my mouth, "'muffling my laughter to soft snorts. "'Someone else was running the same ruse? Oh, "'What irony! "'Perhaps there was also several headless horsemen "'sharing a pint in the local pub.' "'Well, let me assure you,' Darby said, "'regaining his composure. "'I am in the company of the Frankenstein monster. "'Whoever this... this poseur is,' He is not who he claims to be. He stormed off in a huff, slamming the wagon door shut for good measure. This is not funny, he said when he saw me laughing. I opened my mouth and let my laughter wash over him. Let the townspeople hear it. What was one town? Of course it is. I never heard anything so funny. Darby pulled a skillet out of the cabinet, retrieved half a dozen eggs and a sack of ham from the pantry. It's embarrassing is what it is. 
And what if this other Frankenstein monster is heading south, and has already hit all the towns between here and Chicago? Darby froze, held up his hand. What's that? Fresh shouts lit the air in the distance. We went outside to investigate. A large enclosed wagon, larger than our own, lumbered towards us, leaving a plume of dust in its wake. Painted on the side of the wagon, in ornate gold and black lettering, was The Frankenstein Monster, and below, in smaller lettering, The Legend Lives and Breathes. Townspeople hurried alongside the wagon, their excited conversation drifting towards us in incoherent snippets. Oh, good Lord, Darby muttered. They didn't waste any time, did they? I folded my arms across my chest. How do you want to play this? Darby glanced around as if seeking some place to hide. Why don't you duck into the wagon? If they see you now, they won't pay to see you tonight. I doubt if they're going to spend money to see a second Frankenstein monster when they've just seen one. Darby nodded. You're probably right. Let's see what we're dealing with. Likely their monster is a complete fix-up. Wax fangs and papier-mâché deformities. Unless they seem the sort who'll get nasty, I'll expose them. Then let a few onlookers examine your spike to see that it's real. Ah, my spike. The ultimate trump card at any monster authenticity showdown. I gave a small nod of agreement. A small nod is all I can manage before the part of the spike jutting out beneath my chin presses into my chest. The wagon rolled to a stop alongside ours. The people trotting alongside it reacted to the sight of me. I kept my eyes on the wagon door. It swung open. A midget in a nappy red suit stepped out and descended the wagon's three steps with some effort. When he looked up and caught sight of me, his face flushed. He stumbled on the uneven ground, but recovered quickly. By the time he reached me, he appraised me with a calculating eye that belied little fear. He looked me up and down theatrically and harumphed. "'You call this a monster?' He waved a dismissive hand at me. "'I'll show you a monster.' He turned and faced his wagon, raised his hands in the air. "'Come out, my friend, and meet the man who claims to be you.' We watched the door, waiting, our silence so deep I could hear the brook burbling down in the gully. Finally, the door creaked open. The man who opened it had to turn sideways and duck to fit through. He didn't need the stairs. His feet might not even fit on them. Instead, he stepped straight to the ground. His shirtless body was both beautiful and horrible. He bulged with slabs of muscle, but his flesh was rippled with waves of terrible scars, raised and pink at the seams. Bands of scars circled his arms, one at each bicep and forearm. A ragged scar split his face right down the middle, and one of his eyes was missing. His remaining eye was deep-set beneath a brow like a cliff, his nose jagged like a mountain ridge. He stormed forward, stopped a step closer than his diminutive keeper, and glared at me. I am a tall man, yet when this man faced me I was eye-level with his neck. He opened his mouth to speak, though I expected nothing more than a growl to come from that throat. I don't recall seeing you the day Victor Frankenstein made me. I flinched with surprise at the deep, clear baritone of his speech. Maybe he cobbled you together from the leftovers, hmm? He folded his arms across his chest, his biceps flexing into cannonballs. Perhaps, I answered, my heart pounding. But if so, at least they were human scraps, not pieces of oxen and steer from his larder. This brought scattered laughter from the onlookers. He took a step forward, halving the distance between us. I tensed, expecting him to lunge, but he only stared down at me, one thick eyebrow raised. 
Is that so? Yet I'm not the one who sports his own meat hook. The crowd roared with laughter. The giant reached out, grinning, and tried to grasp the spike. I jerked backwards, and he clutched only air. He surged forwards, reaching for it again. I shoved him hard in the chest while bobbing my head from side to side to keep the spike out of his grasp. From the few times I had been careless enough to catch the spike in a doorway or strike it on a sturdy branch, I knew a strong blow to the spike could snap my neck. I shoved him a second time, then a third with all my might, and only managed to move him slightly. Suddenly he stopped and let his hands drop to his sides. Although I wanted nothing more than to flee into my wagon and latch the door, I stood my ground. The monster stared at me, silent except for the rush of the air through his nose. His gaze was disconcerting, the empty eye socket like an open wound in his face. "'Perhaps we should settle this tonight,' the midget said, stepping forward. He turned to face the crowd. More people had arrived, and even more were hurrying across the field. "'What do you think?' "'Shall the monsters battle to decide who has the right to bear the name Frankenstein?' The crowd roared approval. My plan was already formed. I would agree to fight him, and as soon as the crowd disappeared, we would climb into the wagon and get far away from this town as fast as the horses could draw us. "'What do you say? Shall we settle this like men?' the monster said. And then he winked. I was almost certain it had been a wink. His expression had softened for a moment— and a look that bordered on camaraderie had lit his broad face. Now the look was gone, and the grimace of anger returned. He winked again, this one almost theatrical. Well, he bellowed. I tried to mask my astonishment and match his fierce expression. All right. The crowd cheered, some tossed hats in the air. The midget raised his hands and shouted to be heard over the crowd. The battle will take place at seven sharp at the fairgrounds. Admission only fifty cents. A bargain for such a spectacle. A wide grin spread across the monster's face, filling his eyes with a warmth and humanity that had been absent a moment before. He and his manager lingered while the townspeople hurried off to spread the word. I was still unsure what the monster had in mind, and I was keeping my original plan to flee in reserve as Darby went to fetch chairs. Graves Anderson, the monster offered his hand. Phineas Gage... He clapped me on the shoulder. We gave them quite a show, huh? I shook my head in bewilderment. You had me fooled as well. I was close to fleeing for the safety of my wagon. You? Never. You have the courage of a dragon. I can see it in your eyes. He clapped me again, then turned to join the others. The midget tossed him a shirt. He caught it and pulled it on. Darby had set out four cups as well as the chairs and was already pouring a finger of whiskey for our other guest. The little man's name was Yorkie Gunn. I asked after the origins of his unusual first name, and he replied that it originated from his mother's bad taste, eliciting laughter all around. We talked about life on the road, compared notes on how to draw crowds, shared stories of comical flights from towns on the few occasions when our ruses were exposed. Finally we got down to the business at hand. It was a brilliant plan, Darby said. You're quick thinkers for certain. Everyone in town will pay to see this. I can't take any credit, Yorkie said, pointing at Graves. It was this man's quick thinking. We had no idea what we'd find here. There's another fellow in town claiming he is the real Frankenstein's monster, they told us. I've never been so surprised. What are the odds, I said. Great minds think alike, Graves offered, 
holding out his cup. I tapped it with mine. Indeed. I took a gulp, enjoyed the candied burn of the whiskey. So what exactly do you have in mind? We throw phantom punches, grapple in the dust? Graves grinned. At fifty cents a head, we'll have to put on a better show than that, but that's the general idea. I'll pull my punches. I can't promise you won't come away bruised. But I'll avoid blows to vulnerable spots, especially that spike. He paused, frowning. How on earth did that happen, if I may ask? It was refreshing to have someone ask directly, and I described how I had been using the tamping iron, now lodged in my head, to tamp down a mixture of gunpowder and sand when the volatile mixture exploded. I was grateful that he did not also ask why I wasn't dead. How would I know? Doctors who had examined me speculated that somehow the spike had missed all of the important parts of my brain. When I was young, my mother had always suggested that I didn't use any of it. Maybe that was the case. What about you? I asked. The shirt he was wearing covered the terrible scars. He nodded grimly, allowing that he owed me his tale. My wounds were not inflicted by accident. The brothers of my ex-wife inflicted them, rest their souls. They ambushed me in my barn with meat cleavers and chains, then set fire to the barn and left me for dead. I winced. Why would they do that? I asked. Graves looked off into the woods. I was unfaithful to their sister, in a manner of speaking, he muttered. As I puzzled over his reply, Darby retrieved the bottle and offered seconds. I held out my cup until he poured me a liberal glass. I rarely had more than one alcoholic drink at a time, but I found I was enjoying myself. I felt a kinship with this man Graves that I had felt with no one since the accident. I found his gravelly baritone comforting, enjoyed the rise and fall of his heavy brow as we conversed. Graves landed a blow to my chest, knocking me backwards half a step. He followed with a well-telegraphed roundhouse punch at my head. I blocked it. My first instinct was to duck, but thankfully I suppressed it. Then countered with a punch to his ribs. It was like punching a side of beef. My heart was pounding, the hoots and howls of the crowd magnified by fear and excitement. Graves lunged at me like a bull, arms raised and head down. I sidestepped and swiped at him with the back of my fist, catching his shoulder. He screamed with rage. I answered with my best howl as we closed again, circling. He surged forward, landing punches to my arms, chest and shoulders that sent me backpedaling. While my balance was off, he caught me under the arms, lifted me and slammed me down to the ground. We had practiced this, ensuring I would land on my side or on my ass. Still, it was terrifying. I had to make sure my head was positioned so there was no chance the bottom of the spike would impact the ground. Before I could regain my feet, Graves dove at me, allowing enough time for me to scurry out from under him. I jumped to my feet and kicked him in the thigh. The crowd roared approval as Graves lumbered to his feet. I was gasping, unused to physical exertion, yet invigorated by the sweat and dust and strain. Graves growled, swiped at the air between us, then broke into a grin. I could see it was unintentional. The humorousness of our situation had suddenly struck him. He guffawed, his shoulders bouncing as I struggled to suppress a smile of my own. The crowd didn't seem to notice, but I was concerned we might give ourselves away, so I ran at Graves, windmilling my arms. He lifted me off my feet and slammed me to the ground again. As soon as I landed, I scrambled between his legs and tangled myself in them, toppling the big man face down. As we'd planned, I scrambled on top of him and pressed his arms up behind his back. 
Graves' cries of pain were convincing as I made a show of yanking his arm up. Do you concede? I shouted. Graves squirmed beneath me, shouting in pain and outrage, until he finally admitted that the pain was too much. Earlier he had insisted the crowd would prefer to see David beat Goliath, and from their reaction he was correct. As Graves regained his feet I extended my hand. He snarled and shoved me. We exchanged new punches, thumping each other with what looked to be all of our might. Shouts rang out that the fight was over. A dozen men pulled us apart, their blood likely pumping with courage from the spectacle we'd put on. Graves and I allowed ourselves to be driven to different corners of the yard as cheers rose up. I nodded thanks, embarrassed by the earnestness of the crowd's congratulations, and hurried away as soon as I could. As I left I noticed our managers huddled, their heads together like close confidants. I smiled, pleased by the sight. It did not take much imagination to guess that they were negotiating a continued alliance. We passed a farmer standing at the side of the road, his arms wrapped around the neck of a mule, the mule struggling to free itself. When the farmer spotted us reclining atop the moving wagon, he froze. The mule pulled free and the farmer plopped to the muddy ground, staring dumbfounded at our retreating figures. Graves and I roared with laughter, pointing at the poor astonished farmer, waving at him like young hoodlums. It had been Graves' idea to climb onto the roof and enjoy the crisp air and sunshine. The vibration was exquisite, like a brisk massage. Normally I didn't like to be seen in public because of the stares and shrieks that resulted, but I found it far easier to be one of the two passing spectacles, rather than the sole attraction. I sighed contentedly, watched a green cow-dotted field drift by. I have to work on my falls. Graves was examining a bruise on his elbow. I instinctively braced with my elbows. I do as well, I said. Our fight the previous night, our fourth, had electrified the crowd. We were getting more confident in our movements, more comfortable working together. By the time we reached Chicago, we would put on quite a show. I chided myself, why should I feel proud of my growing ability to deceive? Do you think it's wrong, what we do? Taking people's money on a false premise? I asked Graves. Graves laughed, clapped my knee and shook it, as if trying to shake sense into me. We're not fooling them. They know neither of us is the Frankenstein monster. They only want to be entertained, to be astounded. He paused to wave at a trio of children, pointing at us from a schoolyard. What we give them is like a magician's sleight of hand. They know we're frauds, but want to be impressed by the skill with which we fool them. I sighed. I suppose you're right. Still, it haunts me to make a living this way. It's the easiest work I've ever done, yet also the most difficult. Graves raised an eyebrow. Really now, more difficult than setting explosives for the railroad? Well, maybe not, I allowed. Graves rubbed at his good eye with the corner of his shirt sleeve. The dust kicked up by the wagon was an annoyance. You said the accident didn't knock you out. Did you realize what had happened right away? No. Images of the accident flooded my thoughts. Years had gone by, yet it was always as if it had happened last week. After the explosion, I was counting my blessings that I hadn't been hurt too badly. It didn't occur to me to wonder where the spike had gone. Then I saw how the other workers were looking at me, and I knew something was terribly wrong. Hmm, Graves grunted. The wagon eased out of the road and slowed to a stop. Graves and I climbed down, I with a heavy heart, because I knew we were stopping so the two wagons could split. Graves and Yorkie would hold back while Darby and I rode into Chicago. 
for our rooster work, we couldn't be seen entering together. Graves held out his hand. See you in a few days, Phineas. I can't remember when I've had a more enjoyable afternoon. I shook, feeling a rush of pleasure from the compliment. I was glad Graves had enjoyed my company. I was hoping we would continue our act together after our performance at the World's Fair, but there had been no discussions of it yet. As we rumbled along the streets of Chicago, I stayed out of sight. I did not like cities. I found city people harder than country people, more apt to hurl insults at a passing stranger sporting a disfigurement. Look to your right, Darby called into the wagon. You can see the fair. I crossed the tiny room and looked out the other window. The sight left me breathless. Massive marble halls, amphitheaters, fountains roaring towards the sky, statues, a Viking ship on a blue channel. Further down, the wheel, rotating slowly, its apex hundreds of feet in the air. Finely dressed ladies and gentlemen strolled the promenade, dwarfed by the attractions. I could hardly believe my eyes. This was not a fairground. It was a shining city dropped here from the future. We continued past the main fairgrounds to the Carnival Midway, where clowns and barkers drew rubes to their shows and games of chance. This was where we belonged, where our contribution to the fair was fit to reside. I didn't mind, though. To be part of this, even the darker, grittier part, filled me near to tears. Our wagon rocked and bounced as Darby pulled down a lane into the dusty lot where workers on the midway slept. A grizzled man in overalls sitting by a smoky pot stood as we lumbered past in search of a spot among the maze of makeshift camps. He pointed at our wagon and shouted something I couldn't make out. There was precious little space, and we had to squeeze between two other wagons, leaving hardly room to open our door. Then there was nothing to do but wait for Graves and Yorkie. I drew a deck of cards from the desk and reclined on the tiny bed. You? Graves boomed, eyeing me up and down for the gathering crowd. You're the one claiming to be me? Why, you're nothing but a baby seal someone's harpooned. At each performance, Graves came up with new and more creative insults to hurl at me. You two don't look nothing like the other one, a man with a thick moustache shouted from the crowd, sounding dubious. What? Darby asked. The other one's all twisted up. Its parts all mismatched. They don't look nothing like it. What other one? Darby looked dumbfounded. I imagined I did as well. The other one? Surely there wasn't a third person masquerading as the monster. Haven't you seen it? A boy no older than twelve or thirteen asked, his eyes round. It's just horrible. I had bad dreams last night. Darby could not get a clear explanation of who this third monster was, only that it was housed in the Hall of Electricity. The wind taken out of our act, Graves and I hurled a few final half-hearted insults. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And retreated to our respective wagons. Darby and I ate cold bacon and potatoes and wondered at the possibility of a third Frankenstein act. There was a rap at the door. Darby rose and pulled back the curtain. Blast it all. 
He shoved the curtain back into place. It's that loon Galesburg, the one who paid to speak to you. I shrugged. Maybe he wants to give away a few more dollars. I don't mind. I suppose. Darby ran nervous fingers through his grey hair, then went to the door, pasting his public smile just as the door swung open. Hello, hello, good sir. So very good to see you again. And you, the man said. Wilson, I recalled his name was. I was hoping I might see you here at the fair. His voice hitched with excitement. I have something to show you. He gestured towards me. Both of you. He would not tell us what, only beseeching us to follow, pulling us along like an impatient child. The sky in the direction of the fair was glowing. At first I thought it must be a fire, but it was not a red glow, but a yellow-white. We climbed great stone steps, and suddenly the grounds were before us, and they were blazing with the light of a thousand lamps. No, ten thousand, a hundred thousand. It is a sight, isn't it? Wilson said, noting my astonishment. It's all powered by electricity. From Nikolai Tesla's Niagara Power Station. I know Tesla. I didn't know who Tesla was, but Wilson seemed proud to know him. And if he had achieved the miracle before us, perhaps pride was justified. Tesla found me space in the Hall of Electricity, Wilson said, pointing at a particularly impressive building fronted with rows of towering columns. I don't use electricity, but it seemed an appropriate venue. I could barely hear him over the crashing of water in the magnificent fountain that was set in the centre. Eight riders on rearing horses surrounded a man, or perhaps a Greek god, standing on the deck of a ship, his arms raised triumphantly. Wilson led us into the hall of electricity, which was so brightly lit inside that I threw my arm across my eyes to protect them, and could not help but think of Frankenstein's monster cowering from the villagers' torches. After a moment our eyes adjusted. It was magnificent. Engines sat at every corner, wires raced above us from one pole to the next, connecting to buildings housed inside one enormous room. Everything seemed lit except the girded ceiling towering high overhead. This way, follow me, Wilson rushed us through, barely glancing at the hall's interior. He led us into a wide hall, then turned onto a narrower hall and led us to a massive door at the end. He fished a key out of his trouser pocket. There was a terrible sound coming from the room, a pitiful keening that made me want to cover my ears. Wilson threw open the door and let us in. The room was empty, except for a raised bed boxed in by wooden pegs. On the mattress lay the thing making that sound, a thing so twisted and disfigured that I could not stand the sight of it. "'It is not nearly as perfect as you,' Wilson said to me. "'I hope we will talk more so I can understand how Dr. Frankenstein formed you so perfectly. The attachment points especially were a challenge.' The thing was crying. Quivers ran up and down its milky pale skin. What happened to me? The movement of its jaws was stiff, and its mouth opened at an impossible angle. It tried to shift itself, cried out in agony. I hurt so much. Hurt. I hurt. And no wonder. It did not seem to have bones in all the places it should. There was no way it could possibly sit up, let alone stand or walk. "'Good Lord!' Darby whispered. "'He frets much of the time, I'm afraid. "'And there is something wrong with his mind. "'He cannot hold memory for long. "'Every few minutes he must learn everything anew.' "'Wilson patted the thing as if it were a loyal pet. "'But he is alive, and that is a start.' "'There were stitches running all over it, 
black dashes that framed the long, raised, semi-heeled places where things had been attached to one another. Where am I? There must have been an accident. Margaret? Wilson reached up and put a hand on my shoulder. He was beaming like a proud father. I could not have accomplished this without your help. I recoiled, knocking his hand off me. Without my... I spotted loss for words. Could this thing really be what Wilson claimed? It was inconceivable, and yet what else could it possibly be? I was lying, I shouted into his face. I made it up. Wilson frowned, as if he were having difficulty understanding my words. This is all an act, you idiot. I'm not Frankenstein's monster. I'm a man with a goddamn spike through his head. Frankenstein is fiction. Only now it was not, and I was partly responsible. While Wilson mulled this over, the thing on the mattress cried softly. Please, please help me, it whispered. Wilson inhaled sharply, turned to me. His eyes seemed to have doubled in size. Then I'm the first. A storm from the room. Darby called after me and I broke into a run, fleeing the building and the twisted monstrosity it housed. Outside, the buildings now seemed menacing. They loomed rather than towered, their glowing presence shouting, We are the future. It will be cold and wondrous. The dead will walk. I put my head down and ran, not sure which direction led to the warmth and chaos of the midway. I stumbled onto the lot and trotted through, seeking Graves' wagon. I cried out when I spotted it on the edge of the field beside a ditch. Panting with exertion, I pounded on the door. Graves opened it, registered my expression and led me in. What is it? he asked, his face full of concern. There is a real Frankenstein monster here, a living creature made from dead body parts, and I help bring it about. Graves only nodded, waiting for me to explain. I told him of Wilson's visit a few months back, and described the miserable thing he had birthed. You're sure it's not some clever hoax? Graves asked when I had finished. I assure you, this one is no hoax. Graves put his face in his hands and sighed. We both bear responsibility. I have been parading around the countryside, convincing people that such a thing is possible. Of course people would try to make their own monster. Of course. The door flew open. Have you located the other monster act? Yorkie asked. We can stage three fights if his manager's agreeable. It is not an act, I said. There is a monster here. Yorkie barked laughter. A monster act falling for another monster act. That spike must have done more damage than you let on. I've seen it. I assure you it is not an act. Yorkie smirked and shook his head. If you insist. In any case, it complicates matters. He was still thinking about business. Business was the furthest thing from my mind, which was swimming in a stew of agony. Silently, I gestured to Graves that we should leave. He nodded and followed. Hey! Yorkie called after us. You can't show yourself together. It'll ruin the act. To hell with our act, I shouted back at him. I want to see it, Graves said as soon as we were outside. I nodded. I'll show you. I wish I never had to lay eyes on it again, but I'll show you. We skirted the edge of the lot, staying in the shadows of trees and brush, passing only one man relieving himself after too much drink. He stared at us in open distress, two monsters lurking, loose from their cages. The main fairgrounds were by now closed for the night, 
so we climbed the fence in a dark spot. We crossed a bridge, passing a grand sloop moored in the canal. Graves gasped as the bulk of the fairgrounds came into view. Wait until you see the Hall of Electricity, I said. The Great Hall had been left unlocked, but not the room that housed Wilson's monster. We could hear the cries of the monster within. Graves turned sideways and slammed the door with his shoulder. The door flew open in comically easy fashion, bouncing off the wall and swinging back to strike Graves. He paused to examine the splintered edge, shaking his head. It looks like solid oak, but it's nothing but cheap hollow pine. I'll bet this whole building is like that, made to look grand, but cheap and hollow under the surface. Before I could answer, Graves was distracted by the monster's awful sobs. He followed the sound and stood over the thing on the cushion. Dear God, Graves clutched two wooden pegs to steady himself. He took a few deep breaths. I am a sight, aren't I? The thing said. Its cheek, pressed to the cushion, was surrounded by a wet stain of tears. Was it a carriage accident? Are you doctors? Yes, Graves said. We're doctors. I nodded agreement, although we were hardly dressed the part, and I had a tamping bar lodged in my head, and Graves a scar splitting his face down the middle. Beyond the creature's dais, a few wooden dowels were leaning against the wall, leftovers from the makeshift prison that surrounded the creature. I retrieved one and crept up to stand behind the creature. Graves' eyes filled with tears. He nodded. I raised the dowel. Do I have a wife? the creature said. You have a wife, and she loves you very much, Graves said. A tear rolled down his cheek. He squeezed his eyes shut. I wanted to close my eyes as well. I raised and lowered the dowel twice, three times, before letting it drop to my side. I can't do it, I mouthed. Graves nodded. He turned to the creature and smiled kindly. I'm afraid I'm going to have to move you, sir. It, uh... It will be painful, but I... I have to take you where I can treat your injuries. The creature's expression made it clear that he did not relish the idea of being lifted. If you must, you must. Graves leaned over the dowels and lifted him out. The creature screamed. I could not imagine the agony that could be causing such a sound to form in a living throat. Arms outstretched to minimise the jarring the creature must endure... Graves carried him, walking swiftly but gingerly. I hurried after. Where are we going? I hissed. Graves turned his head to answer. I don't know. We rushed through the big front doors, glancing left and right. Where could we take him that would be better than where he had been? The problem was not that he was in the hall of electricity. The problem was that he was. There was only one solution. If only I had mustered the courage to bring the dowel down on his poor misshapen head. The roar of the fountain was no match for the creature's screams. They lit the air, echoing off the buildings. I paused, staring at the fountain. This way. I waded into the fountain. The water was thigh-deep and tepid. Graves followed without a word. What is this place? Who are you? The creature said. Its hands, which were clutching Graves' arms were completely different sizes. One appeared to be a woman's. We are your doctors. You've been in a terrible accident, I replied. These are healing waters. I held out my hands. Graves gently laid the thing in my arms and helped me lower it until it lay floating, its face just above the water. 
I'm going to heal you now. I pushed its head under the water. Strands of black hair drifted up and wrapped around my fingers. Graves knelt and pressed the creature's chest, submerging it completely. He sobbed, turning his head to one side as bubbles roiled up to the surface. The thing thrashed its arms and legs weakly. Just another moment, just a moment, I cooed. It will be over in a moment. My chest heaved and I let out a groan, or perhaps it was a laugh, and then I burst into tears. Shh, it's almost done, Graves said. But it was not. It took an eternity for the thing to be still. I don't know if it was more resistant to death because it came from death, or if time had slowed nearly to a stop inside my own head. When the thing finally ceased thrashing and was still, I let go, then so did Graves. It floated up languidly until its face broke the surface, bobbing gently on tiny windswept waves. I'm not a monster. I don't want to play one any longer, Graves said, grimacing down at the half-submerged body, a glow from the electric light that filled the air. I feel like a monster, I said. My legs were shaking so badly I wasn't sure I could make it back to the wagon. I, too, Graves said. What are you doing in there? Wilson stood on the edge of the fountain, frowning. His gaze dropped to the water, to the body. He cried out, leapt into the fountain, thrashed towards us. What have you done? We ran. Wilson shouted at us to stop. I heard sharp footsteps on the pavement behind us, and cries for help, cries that there had been a murder. We raced over the footbridge, clambering over the fence and into the midway, weaving among shuttered stalls, Graves in the lead and me on his heels. Other voices rose up behind us as Wilson mustered assistance. Shouts of, Monsters! and Murder! rang out. This way, Graves called, hopping off a raised railway platform and across two sets of tracks. A passenger train sat quiet and dark on the furthest track. Graves ducked under one of the cars and I followed. A terrific jolt snapped my head back. My vision was laced with electric pinwheels as my feet flew out and I slammed to the gravel. I lay semi-conscious. There was a hard ringing in my ears and an agony behind my eyes like none I had ever felt or imagined. It felt as if my skull had been split with an axe. The underside of the car appeared above me. Graves was dragging me under the car. A moment later his dark silhouette leaned over me. He slid a hand beneath my head and cradled it. Can you speak? he whispered. I forgot about the spike. Pain lanced through my head and neck. Shh, shh. Graves touched my forehead. Then his hand drifted up towards the spike. Oh, Lord. His tone jarred me to full consciousness. What? The spike is loose. It's very loose. He shifted position, bent to peer at the top of my head in the dim light. Does this hurt? I felt the bottom of the spike move side to side, brushing my chest. My head hurt terribly, and there was a wetness on my neck that I assumed was blood. But the movement of the spike didn't exacerbate it noticeably. No. Some of the shouts had grown closer. I hoped we were hidden well enough to evade the men hunting for us. I don't know what to do, Graves said. Should I pull it out? No. A thrill of terror washed over me. The doctor said removing the spike would likely kill me, and that the spike might be holding my brains in place. I think it will fall out in any case when you sit up. He moved it again. The bottom of the spike moved in a wider arc than before. It's very loose. Wouldn't it be better to slide it out carefully? I considered telling him to wrap his shirt around my head to secure it in place. 
but what good was that if it was loose to the point of falling out? And it would be wonderful to be free of it once and for all. Perhaps it was worth the risk of my brain spilling out onto the track to be rid of it. Quiet, Graves warned. I heard footsteps and low voices. The orange glow of torchlight grew bright and then waned. Graves let out his breath. We must get away from here. Pull it out, I said, my heart pounding. Graves put a hand on my shoulder. Are you sure? I grasped his wrist. If it kills me, don't linger, my friend. Get somewhere safe. I couldn't see his eyes, but somehow I knew they had filled with tears. After I remove this oversized three-penny nail, you'll have to find a new line of work for certain. With that, he grasped the hilt of the spike beneath my neck and gently drew it down. The space between his fist on the spike and my chin increased in tiny jerking increments. It's coming, he said. I couldn't believe my eyes. Two inches of spike that had been above my head were now below it. Then three, four, six. The spike stalled. Graves grunted softly, straining. It stuck. It was almost out. I wasn't sure, but I imagined the tip of it was no longer above my head, but inside it. My stomach lurched at the thought. Yank the damn thing out, I hissed. Suddenly it felt like a living thing, a giant steel cockroach inside me. Graves shifted position. He cradled my head between his thigh and forearm, then grasped the spike below my chin. I squeezed my eyes shut, bracing for the moment. I heard Graves grunt, my chin whiplash towards my chest and back up. Fresh pinwheels erupted behind my eyes. Far away, someone screamed. It was I who had screamed. I realized as I drifted away from my body, from Graves and the train and all of my concerns. I was vaguely aware of being lifted, but could not lift my head to look around. Here! They're here! Someone shouted. Not someone. I knew who he was, but I could not think of his name. What have you done? You... Wilson. His name was Wilson. I thought you two were in cahoots. But that's not it, is it? Wilson said to Graves. You wanted to be the only monster, huh? So you killed them both. A roaring of heat and searing light passed by my face. Don't move or I'll burn you alive. Then he shouted again. Here! I need help! Get out of my way, Graves said. You were going to drown him in the fountain too, weren't you? Wilson said. Until I happened along. There was a pattering on the ground. Blood. My blood. Leaking from the now open wound in the top of my head. The ground rose up, or rather, I dropped down as Graves squatted to retrieve something and then stood up to his full height. Shouts of discovery rose up close by. Move aside, or I'll kill you as well, Graves threatened. He was clutching the spike. The centre portion of it was caked with pieces from inside my head, and discoloured from years hidden from the sun. Wilson waved his torch again. Stay where you are, monster! Did he still believe Graves was truly a monster, or did he mean it in the more pedestrian sense? Graves lunged and hit Wilson in the head with the spike. Wilson crumpled to the gravel, his torch falling nearby, spitting sparks. An instant later I was bobbing wildly, clutched in Graves' arms as he fled. Blurred images passed by, canted at an angle that was nearly upside down. Graves said something, but I couldn't make out what, and didn't have the strength to ask him to repeat it. His footsteps took on a hollower sound, and we rose up, over a wooden bridge and back down the other side. We flew through the lot, past cooking fires that left orange after-images dancing in my vision, 
then up a few steps and through a doorway. My God! It was Darby. He helped lower me to a soft bunk. A pillow was set under my throbbing head, the wounds wrapped in a towel. What happened? Darby asked. There's no time, Graves answered. We must flee. Darby knelt beside me. I'll get you a doctor, quick as I can. Yorkie burst into the wagon. His eyes grew wide when he saw me. What happened? He's alive? Will he be all right? There's no saying, Graves said, drawing back the curtain slightly and peering out the window. Let's get away from here and find a doctor. I'm out of the Frankenstein business, I said to Darby, my voice a dry whisper. I'm through. No more. Darby chuckled sadly, patted my shoulder. Whether you want it out or not, you're not much of a monster without that spike. Graves turned towards Yorkie. I'm out as well. Yorkie shook his head, denying the proclamation. Tell me what happened. Graves sketched the events as Darby hitched the horses. Moments later, Darby poked his head inside to warn us that we would be moving shortly. I don't see why you're quitting, Yorkie said to Graves. None of this was your doing. Graves stared flatly, offering no reply. Fine then, leave me with no meal ticket. Yorkie drummed his fingers on his chin, thinking. There are always other attractions. The wheels groaned to a start. Yorkie shouted to Darby to stop. I'm not losing my wagon. Without another word, he hopped out the door. Graves sat beside me. He examined my eyes one after another, and then smiled and nodded his satisfaction as the horses built up speed. Is Wilson dead? I asked. I don't know. He may be. He looked away, closed his eyes. I hope he's dead. Better he die and take his knowledge with him. Darby wound up the switchback road that had brought us to the lot, then along the smoother road along the city's edge. Graves watched through the window as we rattled and bounced, speeding along. Each stone and rut caused my head to split again, but I knew Darby couldn't slow. We're passing the main grounds, Graves said. I'm sorry I didn't get to see more of it. Mm, I agreed. It hurt to speak. Graves yanked the curtain wide. Oh, you stinking bastard! He pressed his nose to the window, peering intently. What? I asked. What is it? Graves pounded the carriage wall. That bastard Yorkie! He's pulling the monster out of the fountain. It took me a moment to grasp. Your replacement? He'll have it pickled and show it in a tank. I groaned. Graves cursed under his breath as we rolled on past the great fair. The Frankenstein monster lives on, I suggested. Graves pounded the wall a second time. Clearly he didn't realise how much it hurt my head when he did that. Yes, it does. But if I ever find Yorkie, I'll pull his monster apart as it belongs. As it belongs, yes. Or better yet, we bury the poor thing where no one can ever find it. Yes, Graves said, letting the curtain drop. Better yet. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is our good friend, Mr. Will McIntosh. Will, thank you so much. Simon, you are a star. Big hug, sir. Thank you very much. Next up is Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim! Greetings and felicitations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this June 2011 Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening of pure and adulterated wonder and hedonist exhortations, Jim Campanella. Let's get this show on the road. 
I have a ton of stories to tell you tonight. First, if you haven't heard it yet in your local newspapers, there was a recent birth announcement for two new chemical elements, number 114 and number 116. If you do not remember, the number of the element refers to the number of protons in their nuclei, which give them their little box on the periodic chart. A couple of pieces of background on this. First, the new bouncing baby elements do not have names yet. The International Committee will vote on those in the next couple of months. Of course, the general public could not care any less. I have thought on this lack of interest, and I say given the current dementia that the general public has with reality TV shows, perhaps the physicists may be able to get their attention by calling the new elements Ryan Seacrestium, or the Situanium, or perhaps Snookium. Sorry. The new elements were made by slamming two lighter elements together in the hopes that they'd stick. And they did, but the resulting elements only lasted less than a second. Mind you, that less than a second is time enough in existence, and that the Carnegie Mellon researchers could reproduce it well enough so that they were given the go-ahead to announce their findings to the world. Elements at the high end of the periodic chart have never been able to be very stable. Note that elements 113 and 115 are still not part of the chart, even though 114 and 116 have now been accepted. No one has been able to stably reproduce 113 or 115, and so they are still in periodic table purgatory, as one reporter stated. The total number of officially recognized elements is now at 114. Next story. Those of you who are Stephen R. Donaldson fans may have wondered for years where his anti-hero Thomas Covenant got his leprosy from. I read Donaldson's Lord Fowl's Bane decades ago, and I believe it was always kind of left a mystery. Well, now I can tell you where Thomas Covenant, the unbeliever, got his disease. It was most likely an armadillo. All right, I'm kidding. Probably not. But it appears that armadillos are a lot less cuddly than one may think. Dr. Richard Truman and his collaborators at Louisiana State University reported in the April 28th New England Journal of Medicine that many infected people in the Deep South contract leprosy while close to home, not in some exotic location where the disease is more common. The only possible infectious agents would be an armadillo or another person. Some of the infected people had even handled armadillos, the only animal known to harbor leprosy. People infected with leprosy in the U.S. often have the same previously unknown strain of the microbe Microbacterium leprae that is also carried by armadillos. Though it's been known for decades that armadillos can harbor leprosy, also called Hansen's disease, the discovery of the overlapping strains strengthens the long-held assumptions that armadillos can infect people directly. Truman and his colleagues compared bacterial samples from 50 patients in Louisiana and 33 infected wild armadillos from five southern states. They found a highly specific strain of the bacterium showing up in 28 of the 33 animals and in 22 of 29 patients who had never lived outside the U.S. or in Mexico. Interviews with 15 of the leprosy patients further revealed that 8 had had direct contact with armadillos. The research states that roughly 6 to 10 percent of armadillos tested in Alabama and Mississippi have leprosy. Other studies place the rate as high as 20% in the wild. That's 20 out of 100. That's a lot of armadillos. 
There are many kinds of armadillos in Latin America, including the nine-banded armadillo, the only one found in the United States, but it's not known if other types contract leprosy. Since the 1840s, when it was first recorded that armadillos lived in southern Texas, mainly near the lower Rio Grande, nine-banded armadillos have expanded their range to much of the deep south and northward to the tip of southern Illinois. It remains unclear how an armadillo can actually transmit leprosy. Truman speculates close contact is required, and he says, quote, actual causality is difficult to confirm, unquote. It's not clear whether armadillos, which get sick from leprosy, are infectious during the long incubation period actually preceding the symptoms, but it's well known that leprosy spreads among people. Truman also stated, quote, the limited exposure people have to armadillos means that some person-to-person transmission must be happening in southern states where the cases show up. Leprosy remains very rare in the U.S. with about 150 new cases every year, so do not freak out and think you're going to join Thomas Covenant in his land or anything like that. Also, since the 1970s, when Donaldson first started writing the Thomas Covenant books, gosh, I feel old, the disease is curable now. Mind you, it's not one shot and be done with it, but it is curable. It can require more than a year of antibiotics to do those nasty little bacteria in, but they do give up the ghost eventually. Don't tell your dog about the next story, or you may plunge him into an abyss of depression. Or perhaps your cat may be even more upset. According to an upcoming report in the journal Biology Letters by Dr. A.W. Crompton of Harvard University, dogs drink just like cats do, even though it doesn't quite look the same to the naked eye, or for that matter, sound the same. Dogs plunge their tongues into liquid, and like cats, swiftly pull up a little column of it through adhesion. Before gravity overcomes the column's inertia and the liquid splashes down into the bowl again, the dogs snatch a sip of liquid. High-speed video using x-rays show that dogs get liquids into their mouths by relying on the way that the liquid adheres to the tongue and the inertia of the liquid columns. It was speculated for a long time that these splashy laps of dogs appear to rely on a different technique than cats. If you look at this on just plain video, the canine tongue curls down into the water and catches a little pool in its curve. Dogs, researchers suspected, were nothing more than scoopers of water. But it doesn't appear to be so, says Dr. Crompton. His observations now show that any water scooped by the dog's tongue falls out as the tongue moves back into the mouth. As in cats, it's the top of the liquid column that's the real drink. Crompton says, quote, Cats are just a little neater than dogs are. Crompton's x-ray analysis of the drinking also adds a new chapter to the story of lapping by detailing how liquid gets from the front of the tongue to the swallowing point. The tongue traps the water against the ridged roof of the mouth. As the tongue moves out again and again for subsequent laps, the captured bit of liquid travels back. A particular bit of Captured liquid may need maybe three tongue extensions to actually get swallowed. Crompton says that cats probably do that too. The authors do state that the oral cavities are similar for cats and dogs, so the creature's similar lapping habits should not be all that much of a shock. Next is a bit of a technology update from MIT's Technology Journal. For anybody who's ever had trouble sleeping or worried that they may have sleep apnea, 
Well, a new bit of frippery from Nix devices may help you. The Nix company is now offering, that's N-Y-X, they are now offering pajamas that actually have built-in sleep monitors. The company developed a nightshirt embedded with fabric electronics to monitor the wearer's breathing patterns. A small chip worn in the pocket of the shirt processes the data to determine the phase of sleep, such as REM sleep when we dream, light sleep, or deep sleep. Dr. Matt Bianchi, a sleep neurologist at Massachusetts General and co-inventor of the shirt, says, quote, it has no adhesive and doesn't need any special setup to wear. When people with sleep disorders spend the night in a sleep lab, they're hooked up to a complex array of sensors that monitor brain activity, muscle activity, eye movement, heart, and breathing rates. The Nix company's new sleep shirt dramatically simplifies this by focusing only on respiration. Says Bianchi, quote, It turns out you can tell if someone is awake or asleep and which stage of sleep they're in purely based on their breathing patterns. That's a much easier signal to analyze than electrical activity from the brain. During REM sleep, the respiratory pattern is irregular with differences in the size of breaths and spacing between them. Breathing during sleep follows a much more ordered pattern. Deep non-REM sleep shows smaller and more regular breaths. The idea behind the sleep shirt is to allow repeated measurements over time at home. Users can log their habits such as coffee or alcohol intake, exercise or stress, and look for patterns on how those variables affect their quality of sleep. Analyzing sleep stages based on respiration alone is still considered experimental. But Bianchi is now testing the device on patients who come to his sleep clinic who are also assessed using standard and more complex technology so that he can make comparisons between the two. Nix will soon begin home tests of the shirts to further validate its use outside the lab. The company hopes to have a commercial product available by next summer, 2012, and the shirt should cost less than $100. While Nix sees their new product as one for consumers, Bianchi simply wants to use it for his patients. Bianchi's previous research has shown that people with insomnia often underestimate how much they actually sleep. So he wants to determine whether giving them an objective way to measure sleep will help them reassess their condition and improve quality of sleep. He says, quote, It will be a game changer for my clinical practice. There are zero objective tools available to physicians to assess insomnia right now. Unquote. The next story involves the history of the mail order bride. Well, sort of, kind of, almost. You would have thought that in early human history, tribes would have been composed of groups of men and women who pretty much grew up near each other and stayed together, like you would expect in a village or a town. But, according to a story in the June 2nd issue of the journal Nature by anthropologist Dr. Sandy Copeland of the Max Planck Institute and her colleagues, that ain't necessarily so. Our ideas of villages and idealized tribes of families in the ancient past are not quite so correct. In fact, males and females in early history apparently acted in very different ways. Most males spent their entire lives in a home region that covered no more than about 28 square kilometers, or about half the area of Manhattan, according to Copeland. These ancient fellows may have occasionally gone further afield, exploiting resources along wooded areas atop bands of bedrock in Africa that extend about 30 kilometers in opposite directions. 
All this information came from South African cave sites where their fossils were discovered. The big difference is that adult females of the time often moved from the places where they were born to distant locations, presumably to find mates among unrelated males, something that was very important for genetics to be continued in a healthy way. When it comes down to it, genetic diversity is just as important to hominids as it is for eelgrass. I refer you to last month's Science News update on eelgrass genetic health. Copeland says that it's not clear how far females actually traveled to reach new groups, only that they did not grow up where they died. Copeland measured a chemical marker of childhood diet and teeth from 19 hominids found in two caves about uh, one kilometer apart. The specimens represented two different human ancestors, 11 Paranthropus robustus individuals from about 1.8 million years ago, and 8 Australopithecus africanus from 2.2 million years ago. Copeland's group measured levels of two forms of strontium in the hominids tooth enamel and in plants and animals now living within 50 kilometers of the fossil sites. Strontium naturally occurs in rocks and soils. Specific strontium signatures characterize different landscapes. The scientists estimate that the strontium signatures in A. africanus and P. robustus teeth were defined by their diet and should have developed by age 9 or so. Collective strontium data for both the species indicated that 8 of 9 large-toothed individuals, presumably males because of the big teeth, grew up in the area where they died. However, at least 5 of 10 small-toothed individuals, again thought to be females because of small teeth, grew up elsewhere from where they actually lived most of their lives and died. This is not without any modern precedent. Chips and gorilla females leave their birth groups upon reaching reproductive age to find new tribes. It's been a controversy for a while about whether early humans probably did the same thing. And Copeland's group was the first to find evidence that those early humans probably did do the same thing. Copeland says that Paranthropus and Astropithecus probably consumed all sorts of savanna delicacies including fruits and nuts and seeds and grasses, although questions remain about what ancient hominids actually favored in their diet. The only reason that the authors bring this up is because male hominids foraged in a much more limited area, so it's entirely unclear how these males avoided predators such as saber-toothed cats while competing for food with baboons and other animals. Just another mystery to be solved, I guess. Well, it is now traditional that we end the show with an ant story although I suspect this is becoming a bit overwrought like Ricky Gervais's monkey news. Tonight's ant story can be found published in the new issue of Physiologica Entomologica. It was written by Dr. Alejandro Fargi Brenner and his colleagues from the Universidad Nacional in Argentina and is entitled, quote, The Truck Driver Effect in Leaf-Cutting Ants. How Individual Load Influences the Walking Speed of Nestmates, unquote. The study itself investigated and quantified the effects of heavily laden ants on foraging traffic in the leaf-cutting ant species, Atacephalates. First of all, what do ants have to do with truck drivers? Well, the truck driver effect occurs when a heavily laden truck slows down the normally faster cars, we have all experienced this on a one-lane highway in a construction zone with a slow truck trapping 
30 cars behind him on the single lane who simply can't escape. This is related to ants because ants have the same potential problem for slowing down the whole of the foragers when a single forager carries oversized loads back to the nests. When carrying resources from a collecting point to the nest, one would assume that ants would attempt to carry as much as possible to maximize their foraging efforts. However, among social insects, that's not always the best strategy. Foragers carrying large loads might overwhelm the individuals processing the resources in the nest and cause a bottleneck on the ant highway, slowing everybody down. Additionally, a heavy load slows the carrier itself down. That may not be a significant cost for a lone forager who has taken a massive load upon himself, but it may reduce the gains for a colony as a whole. It seems that carrying loads well below the maximum carrying performance actually reduces the burden on the resource processors and speeds up the forager, allowing for more foraging trips per unit time. Of course, additionally, there is the actual truck driver effect which can be seen in ants. Since the ants often forage along well-defined trails, slow, overburdened individuals can potentially cause traffic problems. In that context, when one ant is slowed down by heavy load, it also slows down those ants following behind, regardless of their load size. Fargi Brenner's ant studies were done in Costa Rica. His first studies characterized ants and load sizes by collecting individual ants and their loads and determining leaf cutting and ant dorsal surface areas. Highly laden ants were 25% bigger and carried 100% larger loads than the ordinary laden ants. They then performed field manipulation experiments on foragers of several ant colonies, which is basically another way of saying that they messed with the ants' collective heads. In the first experiment, they identified highly laden ants and measured walking speeds for these ants and the ordinary laden ant following directly behind them, and another nearby ant as a control. They then removed the highly laden ant and mimicked the removal motion over the control ant, which to me is a kind of weird control, but then again, what do I know about ants? After five seconds, they measured the treated ant, which was the one with the heavily laden ant taken away, and the control ant speeds. Removal of the burdened ants from traffic increased ordinary laden ants' walking speeds from 1.9 to 2.9 centimeters per second. In the second experiment, they created highly laden ants to potentially slow down traffic. Initially, the speeds of two ordinary laden non-consecutive ants were measured. Then the load mass of an ant directly ahead of one of the two measured ants was artificially increased by adding a 10 milligram piece of aluminum foil on top of her leaf cutting. After 10 seconds, the speeds of the treated ant, that is, the one following the created highly laden ant, and another control were measured again. The creation of highly laden ants reduced their follower speed from 2.4 to 1.6 centimeters per second. And you are saying, so what? Isn't that obvious? Well, you've got to remember that nothing is obvious in science until you actually do the experiment. The results clearly show how ant load can impact the overall colony foraging rate and, by extension, intracolony fitness. Again, as silly as the work sounds, it demonstrates that ants have remarkable flexibility in foraging behavior, and the result supports the idea that leaf-cutting ants make choices not only as individuals, but also 
collectively. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, and need I say it, stay away from armadillos. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And so we come to the end of Starship Sova Show 195. Mr. Campanella, thank you very much, sir. You are a star. So that is it. That is show 195 put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. See a new fact article, Andy, thank you very much for that. And artwork, Matt, you were excellent. Thank you very much. Don't forget, the if you want to come along to the time travel lecture, that would be amazing. Connie Willis, Ted Chang, and Amy H. Sturgis. It's on the 23rd of July. And actually, on the 30th of July, we go on our happy holidays for two weeks. So I think there'll be two weeks off then, Starship. So I'm just thinking out, out of the top of your head there. But please pop over, you know, treat yourself to a ticket. That would be fantastic. And I hope to see you there. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A fatally recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.